Welcome everyone to episode 53 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Scott Gazelhart. Now Scott was a volunteer firefighter with the Frazee Fire Department there in Minnesota. During his time there, he had a bunch of bad MVAs, some ice rescues. He started in nightmares, flashbacks. He turned to alcohol. He turned to meth. He attempted suicide. He was in a very dark, dark place. But he got through that, and now he sees color again. So this is his story, and without further ado, let's bring him in. Scott Geiselhart. Welcome, everyone, to the 25 Live. With me today, my special guest is Scott Geiselhart. Scott, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Good. Well, I appreciate you being on the show with us. Where are you actually at right now? I'm in Fargo, North Dakota. That's where I live. Okay, that's but that's not where you were a firefighter, is that right? No, I'm. Uh, I'm a, I was a firefighter from uh, Frazee, Minnesota. Okay, and where's where can you find Frazee at in Minnesota? Um, it's about sixty miles east of Fargo, North Dakota. Okay, all right, very good. Um, at what age did you actually start the fire service there? Uh, I was around twenty-five years old when I started in Frazee back in 95. Okay. How, how, uh, how young are you now? I'm 52 now. I've been okay. off the fire department for a little over a year now. I retired in June last year. Nice. Very nice. Um, now you were, you know, Frazee is a volunteer department, correct? Yep. So what was, uh, kind of the other real job, side job, whatever you want to call it? Um, I used to own an auto repair shop. Okay. In, in Frazee. So, yeah, I had that um, up till about three, four years ago. What well, do I feel like you were also the mechanic for the department as well? <laughs> yeah, you kind of get, yeah, you get pulled into that. And it's, you know, we had a few mechanics on there, but yeah, I always kind of did some maintenance on the smaller vehicles. Nice. Nice. It's good to have you around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on. We got a spot for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I got a toolbox I could use too. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, I mean, what kind of, runs were you going on there at, at Frazee? Uh, when I got on the fire department, we were just doing fire, uh, fire calls. We didn't have any jaws of life or anything. So we weren't doing auto extrication. We'd show up and do what we could, but um, mainly it was just grass, lots of grass fires back then and structure fires. But correct me if I'm wrong, your department kind of evolved and started bringing in actually getting those jaws, uh, doing all sorts of different technical rescue stuff. Is that correct? Yeah, we actually um, just bought a small, you know, it was a one ton crew cab um, with a pullout in the back. And yeah, we got the jaws of life and we trained and we had, you know, like I said, we had some mechanics on our, on the fire department. So it was just kind of second nature for us to be doing it. And, and we found that you know, it was 15 minutes to get from Frazee to, to Frazee, or I'm sorry, from Frazee to Detroit Lakes and vice versa. So um, Detroit Lakes being a larger city with the Jaws, you know, we were losing 15 minutes on the car accident scenes, the golden hour. So that's kind of one of the reasons we decided to get the Jaws of Life too. Well, that 15 minutes, that's pretty significant. Yeah. Uh, so once you got those, you were actually... Uh, I imagine going on a lot of wrecks and, and actually being much more involved than you were previously. Is that accurate? Yes. Yep. Okay. And those are, those are never fun to be at. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's 
unique as far as you're able to use your skills that you were trained with. But um, when you're doing that kind of stuff, generally not the greatest of outcomes. Is that, is that accurate to say? Well, we, yeah, we unfortunately had, when we, we, you know, we, we trained, we got good, but we had good because we had a lot of bad, you know, bad car accidents with a lot of fatalities in them right off the bat. Um, so we were kind of baptized by fire and yeah, it, we weren't prepared for that. I mean, you can train all you want to see that stuff, but once you actually start seeing it and in a small town, um, you know, we weren't really prepared to see our friends or our neighbors and things like that in these accidents. No, no, absolutely. I mean, how big of a town is Frazy? Uh, it's about 1,300 population. I mean, yeah, you, you pretty much almost know everybody you end up going on. Yeah, and, it's you know, it's a lot of tourism too, but um, a lot of times the tourists that were coming back were, you know, people, your residents that moved away and they'd come back in the summer or whatever, and so we knew the families or knew all of them. Okay, so speaking, yeah, speaking of them leaving uh, for the winter, uh, pretty cold there, I imagine. You actually have something I don't even deal with necessarily a whole lot in Ohio. You had a bunch of ice rescues and stuff like that as well. Yeah, the cold water rescues where they are fishing or duck hunting or something or cars going in the water. So, yeah, we have Gumby suits, um, ice water rescue suits that we put on and go in the water. And, yeah, that's, that's a whole lot of training for that, too. It's a whole different style. It's not like going into a swimming pool to rescue somebody. No, no, not at all. So, you know, going on these type of runs and going on these runs with people you know or at least – you know of other people that know them you know the whole kevin bakey kevin bacon excuse me theory of uh what the five i forget what that was but uh um you kind of knew a lot of people that they knew other people but yeah. um i mean did, did any of that kind of start messing with you at all oh yeah you know it's it, it's one thing to go out and see a car accident and the kids have it to be the same age as yours but when it's kids that you know and your kids play with or, you know, friends or even sometimes relatives. I mean, that didn't happen in my case, but um, some of the firefighters had relatives. And, yeah, I mean, in, in fact, in, in this area, there was one that a small, really small town, and the chief responded in his own vehicle to his own 16-year-old son that died in a car accident. He was there quite a while alone with him. So it's... It's difficult. No, that I can't, I can't imagine. Um, what were some of the things that were happening to you? I mean, uh, any nightmares? I mean, any, you know, just reoccurring things, just um, anything like that at all that, that, that was starting to pop up? Yeah, the nightmares are probably some of the first things, you know, bad dreams, nightmares, um, drinking. You know, I always kind of liked my alcohol, but it got to where I wasn't going home. I was going straight to the bar. Um, I wasn't really socializing. I'd go drive around by myself and start isolating and drinking. And, um, yeah, and then the anger, you know, kind of got, I don't know, I just, I got, I kind of started turning into a monster. And I didn't even like being around myself because I just was short-tempered all the time. Almost kind of kind of bipolar would you say where you're you can have a normal conversation one minute but then just snap uh any given time after that yeah i actually thought i had like a split personality because i could be 
really nice to some people, but then all of a sudden I just, you know, especially with my ex-girlfriend and my kids, um, I just, wow, I took everything out on them. I mean, I, I've, I've said stuff to my kids, you know, it's, it's still hard for me to, you know, fully forgive myself for the things I said, because I can't take those words back. And I, I was mean. So it still affects me quite a bit, you know, is that, that part of it. Um, how, how are you, how are you doing at the fire department at um, that point? <laughs> you know, I had, I had that, uh, that armor on and working my way up through the ranks, you know, when I made it all the way up to assistant chief and probably had a really good chance of being chief and I stepped down um, before I became chief for several different reasons. Um, I knew I was messed up and um, I actually went from assistant chief down to a red helmet, down to a yellow helmet down to not making any calls at all and, and avoiding the fire department, making excuses not to make the meetings and the trainings. And, you know, I changed as, as fast as I went, you know, into the anger and everything. It, it was even quicker once everything started hitting the wall and that, you know, there was a car accident that kind of filled the bucket and it overflowed and I snapped. I just, I, I just was, I felt like I was in a tailspin after that one. What were some of the things that happened after that accident? Um, I started doing a lot of meth. Um, something I never ever thought I would, you know, I, I wasn't for drugs, so I never thought I'd even touch meth, but I got involved with some, uh, some meth at some music festivals and things like that with my friends. And, um, you know, at first it was just a couple couple times a month maybe but then after these you know there was a bad car accident back in like 2010 and um that was the one that you know it's it's like why are we even doing these calls when you know they, they turn out bad it seemed like i was a grim reaper like i was just jinxed and bad luck and i told myself that i said if i start keep going to these calls more people are going to die so i got to avoid them and that's kind of what I did after that call. So you would you would on purpose kind of miss runs or not uh, not respond? Yeah, at the end, um, you know, it was like 2012 or 2013. Um, it was it was incredible because I went from probably making the most calls down to making probably the minimum, and I lived in town. But in 2010, I also built a brand new repair shop. So, you know, I, I, I had the excuse that, yes, I'm always busy. I've got so much work on my, on my plate. I can't get it all done. I'm also, you know, finishing up the shop, working on that. So I made all sorts of excuses. And, you know, I mean, I was actually busy, but not that busy. You um, know, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. You know, it was, it was really weird, though. And I couldn't stop myself. I didn't know why I was doing what I, I never heard of PTSD. So I didn't know what was going on with myself. I thought I had a split personality and I was going to go crazy. Um, when the pager would go off, sometimes I would be in my office and I'd just start snorting lines. I mean, it, it just, the pager almost pissed me off in a sense that, you know, I, I knew something was going on from the fire department. That's what was, it was causing me to be like that, but I couldn't put two and two together. 
were you also having issues? Um, like, was anything reflecting in the, the auto repair shop as well? Like with the, your employees having to deal with, you know, the rage and anger as, as well, or were you able to kind of mask it there a, as well? Um, no, my mechanic got to know me pretty good. Um, he's seen me throw some pretty bad temper tantrums and throw tools and, and break things. Um, you know, he, he just kind of learned to stay out of my way, I think more than anything, but, um, probably the people I'd seen it the most was the ones that were closest to me, my ex-girlfriend and my, my kids. And in 2012, they actually moved out. Um, my girlfriend left me and took my kids with her and uh, moved into an apartment building. But, you know, so that, that pretty much made me isolate even more because there was no reason to go home anymore to an empty house. So I stayed down at the shop 24 hours a day, pretty much just, just, I don't know, isolating. Um, my shop had cameras all the way around the outside, so surveillance cameras. So I, I used those. Um, it was, it was weird because I had deer. I fed deer down there, fed animals. I'd, I'd use those cameras. I'd sit and just watch. It was, I don't know. And I'm sure that was part of the math. Not really worried about the police, just that was my socializing kind of. I just didn't really want to socialize with anybody. And I actually ran my shop almost on, on cameras also. People would knock on the door. And if I want to talk to them, then I'd answer the door. But if they didn't have their vehicle there or I didn't want to talk to them, I just, you know, I'd avoid them. I'd avoid a lot of people, a lot of friends. At, at this time when you moved out and was staying a lot at the shop, was did the, the alcohol and, and the meth, did that get even worse at that point? Um, the alcohol probably actually slowed way down. Um, it was pretty much just meth. I was doing up, I, I was up to a line of a line an hour minimum. Um, I mean, I, I, I look back at it now and I just don't understand how my body even absorbed all that meth. I was snorting it. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of, a lot of meth to go up your nose and I, I can still smell now. And, you know, it's just a miracle. My nose still works and my, I have my taste buds, but, um, so yeah, and, and we can probably back up a little bit and sure. um, and I can tell, like I can go through the story a little bit um, in a timeline. Um, back in 2010, um, after all those car accidents, I, I'd seen the changes and everything. We had had a uh, an individual, high school individual that rolled over his vehicle off an icy road and into ice water. And it went upside down in the dark. And he was in water for at least 10 minutes, or right around 10 minutes, I'd say. And, you know, when we showed up, it was, I was so proud. It's like, man, we, we did what we had to do. And it was a fast recovery. We got that guy out of the kid out of the water. You know, he was deceased for 10 minutes, but it was ice water. And in ice water, they can survive for like an hour. And you can revive them and bring them back and live a normal life, especially if they're young and healthy like this individual was. So we got all done with that car accident. And it's like they got a heartbeat. They took them to Fargo and warmed them up. They've got an amazing program up here where they can slowly warm the body up. And, you know, it's they've done so many of them that they're good at it. And, you know, we're, we're celebrating. We're like, hey, we saved one. You know, we lost a lot of them in ice water, and, and now we've got one. We saved one. 
and you know it was a, it, it was a victory. It, was, it felt really good. And then about a month later, they um, a firefighter came to my shop and told me that the kid passed away from a lung infection. And that was the one that broke my back, basically. And I told myself I was the one that killed him. I, I am jinxed because it must have been something I did. I must have pulled him through the water and something got in his mouth. It was because I did that because I pulled him out of the vehicle. So it was like it was all on me. You know, and, you know, it was, it shattered me. I mean, I'm like, this isn't fair. I mean, they can't take this one from us. And, and it was absolutely nothing we could do, all the training in the world, and we're still losing them. Um, we didn't do debriefings. So, you know, a lot of times we'd come back from these car accidents and put the vehicles away, get it ready for the next run, and we'd be free to go back home. And, you know, it'd be within an hour, we'd be back home after being at a bad car accident and being expected to play catch with your kid or, you know, go back to normal life. And it, it just doesn't work that fast. So that was, that was probably one of the things that I kind of would say did a lot of the damage to me. That and the lack of education about mental health. I didn't, I felt like I didn't have a fighting chance because we never talked about mental health. You know, we're supposed to know about that, I, I guess, but um, yeah, it, it, it really ate me up pretty bad. So you just, you were taking all these different traumatic incidents and really personalizing them and putting, putting the blame on yourself. Yeah. And that has to add up and add up. And I mean, um, my buddy Travis just talks about stacking it up on the pile, stacking another one up on the pile. And it just, like you said, I think you said it earlier that, that, that cup spilled over. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I definitely had enough. So you what know, was, I, go ahead, sir. You know, and then as time went on, you know, my girlfriend moved out. She just had enough. I mean, the anger was just, it's, it was intense. I mean, in, she didn't have to do anything. I'd just get, I'd blow up and same with my kids. And it's, you know, it got to the point where in 2014, when I went over to the apartment and I blew up at them and yelled at them and, and I left there and said, what kind of monster am I? I, I just walked in the room and yet took everything out on them and it had nothing, nothing had, it wasn't their fault. And, um, July of 2014, when I left that apartment, I went back down to my shop, which is just a couple blocks away. And you know, when I went into my shop, I, I, I remember telling myself all the way down there that I got to stop myself. I got to, I got to quit this because I'm going to have a split personality. And I'm going to black out and I'm going to go on a shooting rage or something. I'm going to hurt people. And that's how far gone I felt like I was. And all this meth I was putting in my body, it's like, this isn't me. You know, I've, I've just got to, I got to destroy this monster I became. And that's when I went down to my shop and sat down on my desk and reached into the drawer and grabbed out my 44 Magnum and put it to my head and I squeezed the trigger and the hammer came down and, and clicked. And um, didn't, uh, didn't fire any rounds off. It was a revolver. 
Um, it's supposed to be foolproof. It, that was going to be, yeah, it wasn't going to be half-assed. It was going to do a lot. It was going to take my head off. I didn't think about, you know, open casket. I didn't think about a suicide note. I had all my insurance papers laid out for quite a while. And my, in fact, my insurance papers would pay out on a suicide after the first two years of the policy. So, I mean, there's a million dollars sitting there for him. And that's, that's what I figure. At least I can give him a million dollars that, you know, she can go find a new guy and my kids can have a decent dad, you know, and you get to that point in your life. I mean, I, I just, I mean, it hurts inside when I just think about how far down I went to where I actually thought people were better off without me and that I have to destroy myself. You know, and when that hammer came down, I knew it was a mistake. Um, I knew immediately. I mean, I was just terrified. And um, when I kind of came back to, I mean, I jumped up on the back on the desk behind me and it, it was just one of those things like, okay, did that, th did that gun really go off? But what am I seeing here? Am I dead? You know, it's like, what is death? You know, it's, I, you know, none of us really probably, and none of us know. So it's like, my sin is this like what I could have been or, you know, it was just really weird. It, it freaked me out pretty bad. And, um, yeah, I sat down on my computer and started typing on my keyboard and I typed anger, nightmares, flashbacks, drugs in on a Google search and I hit enter and PTSD lit the screen up and I, I couldn't believe it. I've never been in the military. Did, did that whole moment essentially instantly sober you up? It sounds like. Oh my gosh. It was like, what, it, you know, it's like, stop Scott. What's going on here? What are you doing? You just, you just about took your head off. You know, it's like, yeah, there's gotta be an answer here somewhere. And when I seen PTSD and I, I opened it up, it was a mail site I opened up and it, one of the first things I seen was, you know, not only, not only veterans, but first responders, high risk. And it's like, what the heck? Nobody talked about PTSD. I didn't even know what PTSD stood for. And I started looking into it and I had all the symptoms. I mean, it was like, this is me, this is everything. And then I, I got to the part where it talked about therapy. And that was where I, I started to get hope because it's like, okay, I'm not crazy. I've got PTSD. And it was almost like I got a name to what's going on with me and here's some stuff I can do to get some help. I, you know, I started calling helplines. I started reaching out. Um, I, I mean, it was, it was, that was really difficult. Um, I, I called 12, I called a suicide hotline 12 times and nobody answered. And then I called three other phone numbers that were set up for first responders and they were all disconnected. Um, no longer in service. And then I called a friend of mine that was a police officer and he told me they were going to come out and uh, pick me up. I called, I called him on a personal line, just asking him for help. And he said he was going to come out and pick me up and they were going to have to lock me up basically, but take me to the hospital. I was like, no, I just want to talk with somebody. I said, I think I got PTSD and I just tried to kill myself. I said, I just need a friend. And, you know, their policy, their procedures are to, you know, get you to the hospital. And that scared me because I didn't want to be caged up like an animal. 
And then I called another place that was uh, somewhat local and who was on our whiteboard at the fire hall that, you know, if we're having difficulties, we're supposed to call and talk to this person. The name was there and I called her and, and got a hold of her and told her what I did. I said, I just tried to kill myself. And she set me up for an appointment for a week and a half out. After I told her, I just tried to kill myself. And I set that appointment up and hung up the phone and the gun was still laying there. You know, all six rounds were, at that time I had the gun empty. And um, yeah, I just, I just looked at the gun. It's like, nobody cares. There's no help out there. I'm, I'm, I got one last phone number to call. I had 18, or I, you know, I had the phone numbers there. And the last one, the last call, the 18th phone call I made was to uh, share the load helpline. Um, National Volunteer Fire Council and American Addictions puts it out. And, and when I called it, somebody answered and man, I just let it all out. I said, man, I tried to kill myself. I said, I need some help. And there was a firefighter on the other end of the line and he talked to me and he got me calmed down and talked about different things we could do. And um, yeah, it, it was... I mean, I was that close. If if you wouldn't have answered the phone, I would have been dead. I would have, I know how to put that thing to my head and just start squeezing it until something happened because, you know, I was totally lost. And then nobody wanted to talk to me or listen. And it was very, very tough. But, you know, once once this person answered and talked, and I, it was just like a, a world opened up to me. He talked about EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And, he even found me the phone number to a place in Fargo and I called that and got set up for the very next morning to start, uh, to start therapy. It's a little bit better than a week and a half. Oh my, I would have never made it a week and a half. I wouldn't have made it till sunset. Yeah. So it was, you you hear that and just, you have to shake your head. Yeah. It's gotten so much better now. Um, you know, there's safe call out there. There's all sorts, all sorts of stuff out there now. There's, there's, there's a lot more helplines out there for our first responders. And um, I think it's safe call now. Um, so yeah, I've talked to them and, and, and like, you know, brothers helping brothers. There's, there's just a lot more help out there and pure support. You know, it's not just counselors that don't understand our culture. You know, there's, there's firefighters out there and first responders out there that we can call and talk with one-on-one and, and they've been there. So, so yeah. what was, uh, what was that first EMDR session like? Well, the first two sessions, we just went and talked. Um, he kind of wanted to figure out what's going on and, and I really didn't go into too much details about the fire department. Um, I actually talked about ex-girlfriends. I said, you know, I, I must've got my heart broken and I can't love anybody. I can't let anybody in my health, into my world. And I couldn't love anybody. I mean, even my kids, I just wasn't as close. As I thought I should be with them. And so when I went in for the third appointment, which was where we set the light bar up and started the actual EMDR, um, I remember pulling into the village parking lot and I was scared because he kind of explained what we're going to be doing. And um, so, of course, I snorted three huge lines of meth in the parking lot of the therapist's office. 
and um, went in and did the session and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm, I was trying to talk about these girlfriends and it just wasn't going anywhere. It just wasn't making any sense. It wasn't opening any doors. And, and then all of a sudden the car accidents, I started talking about the car accidents and all the crap I seen and, and that wasn't fair. And, and we, we worked on those one at a time and oh my gosh, it was, it was the first time I ever really talked about them. But when I, when I was talking about the car accidents, what was amazing when I was, I was processing it. I was talking about what the scene was like and what the final result was. And it's like, I didn't do anything wrong. I was there to make things better. And it was out of our hands. So no matter what I would have done, the outcome would have been the same. And just hearing that and hearing myself say that, it, I just, it, just, it was wild. I started to heal and forgive myself and forgive myself for being so tough on myself. Um, and, and actually that was the th last three lines of meth I did. I stopped all by myself and I was doing a line an hour and I walked away from it all by myself because I, I started taking care of my mental health and I talked about it. I let it go. Um, and then so, of course, go ahead. I was just going to say cold turkey, you were able to stop that after doing it for several years, correct? Yes, all by myself. I mean, it's it was it was an amazing feeling. I mean, I, granted, I went through a week of hell. I mean, coming down off of meth, and then also my world was opened up, and I realized it was the car accidents. I I, I started thinking about the car accidents and and everything that was going. Did did the alcohol? Um, a chest plate protecting my. It was like, I was seeing things. I was, I was seeing colors. On the way back from that appointment, there was a sunflower field that I, I didn't see when I drove there. I didn't see anything. I mean, I had tunnel vision, but I mean, I, the tears were coming out and I stopped and I looked at that sunflower field and the colors on it. And I, wow, it was very, very emotional, but my emotions came back, my feelings came back, and they weren't numb anymore. It was, it was probably one of the most beautiful feelings I've ever had in my life, being free. Kind of sounds like a rebirth. It, yeah, I mean, it, it's really weird looking back at it now because it's like I, I just can't even say, like, how, how was I doing math? I mean, I get a natural high now where I was chasing a high with the math. Now I... I get a natural high just going outside and just taking in everything that's going around around going on around me. Did did your did anybody even know you were doing that? Any any of the firefighters, any your friends? I mean just just the people I was doing the meth with and the dealers. You know, some people, you know, kind of thought, but it's like, no, Scott, assistant chief, there's no way he could be doing that. So they, they probably knew you were doing drinking a lot of alcohol, but they yeah. had no idea about the meth. Yeah, and they knew I was changing, but again, when you're assistant chief or you're, you know, a vet, you know, one of the older people on the fire department, they don't really want to come up and confront you about it. It's kind of what it felt like. Were you success successful in um, repairing a lot of those relationships? after the fact 
um, with my kids. Um, my older one, you know, he was he was about 17 at the time. So um, it's it's just a really rough age, and he's seen the worst of it. So it, you know, it took a little bit. Um, in fact, he just tried calling me while we were on this interview. So it's kind of neat. Uh, you know, now he's he's talking with me a lot more. Um, and my younger one, my younger son, he he was always there for me. Um, I kind of call him my little booger because I just I couldn't shake him. I was trying to shake him at the end to where I could kill myself because I wanted to be mean to him and push him away. So, you know, it sounds weird, but so uh, I wouldn't hurt him as much or something. I don't know how I was thinking, but yeah, he uh, he's seen all of it. He knew about the suicide attempt right away, and I told him about the math as soon as you know I was clean. And the wild thing was. We were that that December. We were Christmas shopping in Fargo, so that was about you know six months there, about five months later. And um, I looked over at him and I said, "Man, I'm really glad that gun didn't go off." And he looked at me and he said, "Dad, the gun did go off. They killed the bad dad." And wow, that was some powerful words coming from a you know he was probably like 14, 13 years old at that time. So he's seen the change. He, you know, he was there for the whole change part. And, you know, the, the forgiveness that he showed me and willing to see that I've changed, that was, that was very important to have him in my life at that time. Did the fire department welcome you back and, and you know, take you in and uh, just accept you and, and then forgive you? Um, I took a couple couple months off a leave of absence um and i told him what happened and it, it, you know it shook some of the firefighters up because here i am i'm the one that was doing the trainings for the auto extrication and trained a lot of them about about the auto extrication and they you know they kind of looked up to me a, a, quite a bit and for them to, to hear me say that i was you know suicidal and had PTSD and I had to take leave of absence. I was tough on him, but we had a fire a couple months after that. And I showed up, you know, I wasn't on the fire department, but I stopped and I said, Hey, how can I help? You know, I'll stand by the truck and I'll just hand tools. And, you know, when they came by, you know, a lot of them came by and patted me on the back and said, welcome back. And oh, man, you know, they could see the change. They knew that I'd changed, you know, the anger was gone. After the EMDR, the anger was gone, the meth was gone, the nightmares were gone. I was a total different person. The smile was back on my face. I couldn't stop smiling. I just loved the world again. Yeah, it was, it, that EMDR is just absolutely amazing. You know, and, and I gotta share another little story because just to explain how good I felt, I was 46 years old when this happened. And after my EMDR, which was about a month of, of sessions, about six sessions, I uh, was sitting in the driveway with my two sons in the vehicle. And, and I said, look at the picnic table over there. I said, you know, when I was 18 years old, I used to jump over picnic tables. I used to hurdle them. And I said, watch this. At 46 years old, that's how good I felt. I went and tried to jump the picnic table. And I almost made it. I mean, I wiped out pretty bad. <laughs> but... 
you know, to feel that good to even think about attempting that. I mean, I felt like I was 18 again. It was, it was just amazing. Then two weeks later, I tried again, and I actually jumped the picnic table. And it was just, you know, it was just things like that that I was doing. I was going out, and I was dancing, and, you know, I, was, I still drink, but I don't drink like I used to. I, I don't drink to get drunk. I drink socially. And I dance and I talk with people and I listen a lot to people and I enjoy people's company. This is a complete turnaround from where I was and no cravings of math. At, at what point did you decide to talk openly about this? Not just to people you knew, but to, you know, to strangers. Once, once I went through my therapy, I, I couldn't shut up about it. I just, I mean, I was telling everybody, it's like, especially first responders, it's like, man, we see this stuff and I, I could see it in other people that, you know, the divorce rates, the alcohol, you know, drink and drink and drink and party and, and being reckless. So, I mean, I, I was calling the fire departments around me and say, hey, I'll come in and talk about what I went through. and. And these were departments fairly close to me, so they kind of knew who I was. But then when I came in and started talking, it's like we 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 would if we'd have known, we would have helped you, but you covered it up so well. You know, and I, we're we're really good at that. First responders, you know, we're so used to helping everybody else that we don't take time to help ourselves and reach out and talk about things. We are amazing actors and actresses. Yeah, yeah, and it, and when I went um, to Duluth. Um, about a year after that to the fire chiefs conference the first fire chief conference I've ever been to I was actually up on stage speaking and I told my story and told what I went through and I didn't hold much back I I, I was there and I'm like these they're gonna hear it these chiefs and officers they're gonna hear about mental health is it's the elephant in the room that nobody talks about and I let it rip and I said I don't care if they boo me off this stage they're gonna hear it and when I got done Man, it was a, a very long-standing ovation, and the people that came up and gave me hugs and thanked me for talking about it and bringing it out in the open, I was not expecting that. You know, they didn't boo me. They, and I was, it was amazing, the people I meet, meet, have met since then, going around talking, and, and the people calling me from all around the country, you know, big battalion chiefs calling me and asking me if I'll if I could listen to them talk for a little bit, or if I could help one of their firefighters. And I'm just a small town firefighter, a volunteer. But I found a different purpose now. It's it feels good to have a purpose. You're absolutely paying everything forward. Well, it's I'm I'm in mental health now, and I I became a mental health practitioner by putting the hours in, not going to school. I'm a peer support specialist. Um, yeah, I mean, I never thought I'd be working in mental health. <laughs> Did, after, um, after you kind of fessed up to the department and told them what had happened, were there changes there as far as having a peer support team there, people you talked to, or, you know, just kind of behavioral health um, policies or, or changes that, that were there for the other members? Yeah, they, they debrief. Um, 
pretty much any fatality that they have or bad call, you know, they, they give the option for the debriefings. And then we don't just put away the gear, or I should say they don't just put away the gear and go home after these calls. They, everybody goes into the meeting room, they sit down, and they talk about it. They talk about the car accident, what, what, what worked, what didn't work, no blame. And when we first started doing those, that was, that was a total different shift for us because I went home from calls so many times like, oh, that, what was so-and-so doing over there? That was stupid. He was, he was doing the wrong things. But when we got back into the meeting room after the calls, when we started defusing, all of a sudden so-and-so would say, well, I was doing this because of this and this and this. Like, oh, I couldn't see that. Yeah, that makes sense now. You know, you get the whole 360 of what everybody was doing instead of the tunnel vision of what you were doing and not understand what the other person was doing. You know, why weren't they doing this? Well, once they explain what they were doing, it all makes sense. Nice. So kind of fast forward to today. Um, what are you, what are you up to now regarding kind of all this stuff? Uh, you mentioned your peer support specialist, are you still kind of touring the country and, and just talking to anybody that wants to listen? Yeah. With COVID going on, everything got canceled. Um, I'm going to be going to Ohio twice in October, once to the brother, brother helping brothers, helping brothers just to go to the conference. Um, and then there's another conference, the bridge in Ohio that I, I speak at um, about two times a year. And that one's in October too. I'll be going to. So they're starting to open up a little bit. Um, the jazz, the COVID thing really put a kibosh to all my speaking events with, you know, a lot of people have that happen. So. COVID's ruined about everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These podcasts are nice though. You know, we can still keep some stuff I, going. I've been able to do that. I've taken full veins of everybody being home um, yeah. and well, being yeah. available. And, uh, I used to be very close to my deadline. Like, oh crap, I gotta get an episode out. Now I'm I'm way in advanced, and it's it's that it worked out well for that. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, and it's 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 just a time that we have to go through this and be safe about it. And you know, the conferences. I'm sure they'll be back. You know, hopefully in six months here or something. And I, you know, and working in mental health, I've, I've noticed the difference on being able to reach more people too, because we can do Zoom, Zoom uh, like telehealth through Zoom. Yep. And they can sit in their own homes and be comfortable and feel safe and still talk to a therapist. Exactly. Yeah, I've noticed that here too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, we just got to kind of focus on some it's, of the positive. It's been, it's, yeah, it's been just so much easier to access yeah. mental health now because of this. And hopefully even when we finally get to cure the vaccine for this, at least, um, that'll continue, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I think it will. Well, yeah, let me get you out of this on, on more of a, a positive note. I mean, although this is, I mean, you have a positive outcome and you're, and you're, you're taking the reins and, and spreading the word and this awesome stuff that you're doing now, but I've got this thing called 25 questions and they're more random fun stuff. Um, so if you will, I'm not going to go through all of them, but that'd be rude for your, for your time. But how about if you just throw out a number between one and 25 and I'll ask you the question and we'll go from there. How's that sound? You up yeah. for that? 
How about six? Oh, this is this is pertinent though. How how do you manage stress now? Oh, I've got I've got lots of supports. Um, and it might sound weird, but I've even got like safety plans. So if something does go wrong, I mean I've, I've pre-planned some of these and role-played some things that you know. First, for instance, if somebody calls me and they're suicidal and and something actually really goes south, goes bad, and you know I've got, I've got the phone numbers right there that I can call. Um, and then the self-care, it, the self-care is everything. I mean, right now we're doing this interview. I'm looking out the window at the bird feeder, looking at nature and the birds and all the different colors. And I, I make time for myself. That's awesome. What's, uh, what's another number for you? Uh, about nine. All right. Here's your choice. You can have one of the, one of these are going to be unlimited. You have to pick which one. So unlimited sushi or unlimited taco tacos oh for life. That's an easy one. <laughs> that has to be tacos. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Uh, how about one more? Okay. Uh, 11. Okay. Who would play you in a movie regarding your life? Oh boy. I guess I'd like to play myself if possible. Um, I don't well, really, because we said, I said earlier, we are pretty good actors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think I'd probably, yeah, I think I'd probably be the best if, if they did it quick enough to where the age fit, yeah. <laughs> they might have to color my hair. <laughs> At least you have hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got that going for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I tell people it's, you know, with this COVID thing going on, I couldn't get to the salon and get my hair frosted. So it was starting to get dark again. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, well, I'll tell you what, how about we get out on this? Where could, um, if an individual wanted to talk to you or wanted to find out more information, where can they reach you at? Um, uh, I could, I can leave my phone number on this, uh, at the end of this, which is not a problem. Um, I can, I and a I lot could, of phone calls. I could put in the, the show notes as well on yeah, the, uh, on the webpage. Yeah. CNN color. If they Google that, they'll find my webpage too. I got a web, yeah, my webpage I can give you too. Um, CNN color is kind of my title to my program. Um, it just kind of, it, it fits. I mean, cause before I couldn't see colors, it was black and white and gray. And now everything's like a neon sign to me. So, um, yeah, seeing in colors kind of with, it stuck with me. Well, it's, it's definitely a powerful message. Um, just the whole transformation you went through. And that, uh, that, that absolutely makes sense to seeing in color again. You know, even looking back, it's, you know, I'm, I'm really religious now. I mean, I, I know I went through this for a reason and I survived it and I'm not going to waste it. I want to be there to help others. And, you know, when they're in that dark place and feel all alone and I've had them call, I've had them text. And a lot of times they'll text because they can't talk on the phone because they're crying and they can't get a word out, you know, and I've been there. I know what that feels like. And, and they're not alone. And I'll take a call any time of the day or night 
and I'll be there for them. You know, the best I can. I'm like, again, I'm not a hotline, but you know, as long as I can take the call and as long as it's, you know, I'm available to take that call, I'll be there for them. And they leave a message or text me or whatever. I'll, I'll do everything I can to help. I have to imagine that stems from making call after call, after call, after call, being so desperate for just anybody, a real person to pick up. Um, I mean, that's, I have to just guess that that that's your mind frame. Like <laughs> I want to pick up that phone. Yeah. You know, I don't want somebody to, you know, give up. Yeah. And I work in mental health crisis stabilization now, and I answer crisis phones for our County and, and for the reservation. So, you know, I just, it's just, it's natural for me and I can share what I went through with others. And I don't know. I mean, when somebody calls me, it's been over 30 people that have told me that if it wasn't for me, they'd been dead. And I never, I, I don't know how I end up in the right place at the right time. I mean, whether I'm on the West coast, East coast, I've had, situations where I've been face to face with somebody that's about ready to take their life. And you know, that, Scott, you were just talking earlier about how you felt like all these individuals were dying because of you. And then in reality, you, you have 30 people saying they're alive because of you. I know it's a, when they say that to me too, it's, uh, it's a little hard to hear. It, 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 it sounds like it should be really happy, but it's a little difficult for me to understand that, you know, I'm making that much of a difference and I get to be me. I'm, you know, I, I don't have to try to be, a, you know, I, I don't have a lot of education, so it's just through experience. I'll, I'll take experience any day over somebody who just reads books. That's just my opinion. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I feel like I'm at too is, you know, therapy's needed. We need that. But for somebody to end up going to a therapist and seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist or the professional help, it's a big step. And if I can be that person that they call and, you know, give them that boost of, of hope and energy or whatever you want to call it, you know, to go see a therapist and talk about it or if they want to practice with me, you know, what are you going to tell a therapist? You can tell me your story and practice it or, you know, start opening up and talk with me. And then when you get to the therapist, you're ready to, ready to go and there's a little more trust built there because therapy does work. I mean, EMDR is absolutely amazing. And there's other therapy out there. I mean, it's not just EMDR. There's other stuff out there that works. And I just wish I would have had more education about mental health and would have reached out a lot sooner. Well, I don't think enough people know about EMDR and uh, the hope is with you talking all about this and, and being on the show and being on all other, you know, other shows that it will get out there. The people will know that that's an actual option for us. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really easy. I mean, it's not a painful process. You're not, you know, they don't drug you up. They don't, in fact, a lot of people that do EMDR, they take less medication. I never had to take any medication. I just, I don't know. And maybe that's part of the firefighter thing. I made too. I just, I told myself I was going to toughen this out and I'm going to face it head on and you know, whether it was right or not, I don't know. It, it just, you know, that's the thing with mental health. There's no pit, there's no cookie cutter for mental health. It's everybody's unique and different.
work for me might not work for the next person, but again, I'll be there to listen and, you know, it's nice to have resources and contacts that I can hand people off to also and so they can get, you know, connected with the right resources. Yeah. If it doesn't work the first time, you just, you know, you find somebody else that, yeah. you know, so find somebody that fits, fits you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've gone with people, you know, to their therapy and sat in the waiting room for them. And afterwards we'd go for dinner and, you know, just so somebody's with them. That's awesome. All right, Scott. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing this message, uh, everything you went through, you know, uh, the good and the bad. Um, and it's uh, truly is a powerful, powerful thing you got going there. And and I'm glad that you're openly talking about it because you've already said it's, it's impacted others positively and it's going to continue that way. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, and I'll actually just see you in a few months here in Ohio. Yeah. It's going to be nice meeting you guys in person. All right. Unlike, unlike, uh, right now, I'll actually have pants on. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. That's the bad joke I've been saying. And I did want to say this too, cause I, I just, it came to me in the middle of this thing. What I was trying to say earlier was the seven degrees to Kevin Bacon. Did you ever hear about that? I, I've heard of. I can't recall what it is right it's now. It's something. It's something like you could take any actor, actress, and put them in a movie, and then they'll be with. You can link them to another person in a movie, and you always end up getting back to Kevin Bacon. So what I was trying to refer to earlier on was that you, being in that small town, it was like two degrees to Kevin Bacon. That was my point, and it was a bad point. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I should just shut up and take it out, but I probably won't because it's it's honest and it's me and whatever i'm an idiot so <laughs> let's leave on that note <laughs> okay all right thanks, thanks again for, scott yeah thanks for having me on the show all right